Evolution, not morals, evolution, not law, is screaming something at us. And that is, you are a caregiver. And when you look at statistics of loneliness in the male population cut off from that aspect of their life, the number of cops who kill themselves, four times more police die by their own hand with a firearm than are killed in the line of duty. The, 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 the studies by Cigna and other people of loneliness. What you have to see is that everything is shouting at us. You've got the balance wrong. And the balance isn't just work-life balance. It's work as an ID. This is the CBF Podcast Conversations. Each week, we are bringing you stories from across the world of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and creativity from practitioners, ministers, thinkers, authors, and more. I'm Andy Hale, your podcast host. We're excited about another year of delivering interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. This platform is not designed for you to listen on an island unto yourself. Share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Tucker, Georgia, Warsaw, Poland, San Francisco, California, and Sydney, Australia. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We also want to give a special shout-out to some of our podcast listener supporters, including Carson Fushi, Cindy Foldendor, Bill Johnson, Ralph Stocks, and that anonymous person that keeps giving a gift in honor of CBF Prom. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our three annual sponsors, the Center for Congregational Health, McAfee's School of Theology Doctorate and Ministry Program, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. And now... On to our conversation. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health, whose mission is to help faith communities and their leaders thrive. Healthy congregations can transform their communities to be more compassionate, faithful, and just. Utilizing a network of highly skilled coaches, consultants, and intentional interim ministers, the Center supports congregations and ministry leaders to address the challenges they face. Visit their website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about how the center can be your trusted partner in ministry. Our guest for this week's CBF Podcast Conversation is Frank Schaefer. He's a New York Times bestselling author, as well as a filmmaker. In his former life, he was a fundamentalist evangelical who brings now an alternative voice to increasingly diverse American religious landscape. Frank, thank you for joining the conversation. Andy, this is great. I, I so enjoyed being with you in New York a few weeks ago. Um, we met at a rooftop event to help launch my new book, and you and I had a lovely conversation. It's wonderful to see you again. You know, the amazing thing uh, for those that weren't there is you were given several times to, to speak that uh, over that event, and you took your whole first speaking engagement, which you were brought in to talk about this new book, which we're eventually going to get to, and you used it to talk about two of your other friends' books, uh, yes. which I, I thought was was quite remarkable. Um, so how is John doing, by the way? Well, one um, of them was in the hospital. John Pavlovitz uh, had a new book out, um, and it's not right in front of me, although I interviewed him about it. If something about God and not don't be a jerk, John's book. Yeah, you got it there. Mine's in the other room. Um, if God is love, don't be a jerk. And then my friend Jackie... I had a book out called uh, Fierce Love, and John, I had told him before the operation, I, I told John Pavlovitz, my old buddy, we'd been on the road together with Vote Common Good in a bus, touring the country, stomping and stamping and stumping for Democratic House candidates in the 2018 election. So we sort of bonded on that. We had known of each other before, but now he's like a brother to me. And so John and I we're out together. And then he developed this brain tumor coinciding with the launch of his new book. And I'm an author. I earned my living as a writer. And I have for the last better part of 40 years, ever since I left the evangelical world. Um, and 
So, you know, I was thinking, wow, here's a nightmare scenario. Um, the week you launch a book, you know, you get some huge headline, some massive event, and you're driven from the news is one way. And then the other would be, how about a brain tumor in the week of your book launch? So I said to John, I said, look, I'm going to go out there and go to bat for your book as if it's my own. I've never done that before. So I did what I told him. And we were live streaming to five different channels, including all my own stuff. And so I just took the first day to promote him. And then Jackie's book, Fierce Love, I read um, in preparation for that event, thinking, oh, you know, darn it, you know, a book by another pastor, no offense to pastors out there, but people tell me I'm going to write a book. And I have a jaundiced view of that because I'm a, I'm a writer. That's all I do. And it would be like me sitting next to a surgeon on an airplane who says I'm a cardiothoracic surgeon. And I say, you know, I'm going to try that sometime <laughs> uh, without having done all the stuff. It pisses me off. So anyway, um, but I love Jackie's book, and I thought it was a terrific, no pun, bookend to my book, uh, which we will get into in a minute. And so it came very naturally. So I just took the first evening. I took half my time on the rooftop the whole first day to promote two other books, and I never mentioned my own. And then the next day, I, I got my shot and talked about my new book. But um, that was all from the heart, and it was all real. And um, I'm so glad I had the opportunity to help John out in his moment of need. And he's now made a great recovery. Uh, and we've been in touch several times. And Jackie and I are doing lots of stuff together. I've been on her podcast. She's been on mine. And we're trading off and doing all sorts of lovely things. So I made a sister and a brother and um, fellow authors. And, and we were able to help each other. So you are a very uh, vivacious and prolific writer. With, with many people who are listening to this, I haven't read your work. But I wonder if some you know, know your story of where you've come from and where you're going. Mm -hmm. um, if you might share just a little bit sure. about yourself. Yeah, well, if they read the foreword of my new book, and now I'll drop the title here, Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy. When I was writing the book, um, it was a five and a half year project. And then with COVID turned into, bumped into the sixth year because I realized that I had advocated exactly what COVID forced everybody to do as if mother nature sent a note saying, forget the book, We're, I'm gonna make you do this, which was stay home, rediscover what you really are in essence, which is a relationship machine, a love addict, someone who thrives or dies by how you relate to other people. Um, and, and we define people by career. So anyway, in, in, in writing this book in the five and a half years I took to write it, during that whole time, I was taking care of my three youngest grandchildren, Jack and Nora and Lucy. And that's what the book came out of. And then um, my editor, uh, Christine Valeras at HCI Books said, look, you mention enough about your background in this book that people are gonna be curious to know more. And please don't assume they've all read your memoir, Crazy for God or Sex Mom and God or your novels like Portofino. We're, we, we're introducing this to a completely new audience. Uh, for one thing, a lot of the feminist leadership are going to be interested because of your view of women, I mean, in a good way, and the fact that you, you focus on family care and nurturing from a male perspective. So I went back and I rewrote the foreword, and essentially the story I told is this, and that is that I was raised in the 1950s and early 60s in a small evangelical fundamentalist mission that happened to be in Switzerland run by Americans, my parents, Francis Schaefer, the evangelist and theologian, and Edith Schaefer, my mom and prolific author. <laughs> and that in my early childhood, that, that background was very humble. You know, I mean, we only had uh, meat on Sundays and my mother would make a chicken, you know, go far enough so she could feed the 30 students who were around the table. And you get a, a little piece and a lot of gravy, a lot of rice, a lot of vegetable. And then after they started writing some best-selling books, this intentional community, Libri Fellowship, uh, Libri in French meaning the shelter, became very well known in the evangelical circles. And so we had people like Billy Graham, the evangelist, and then on the secular side, uh, the, the guru of the dropout and take drugs movement in the 60s, Timothy Leary, coming by. And uh, I met Jimmy Page from the Led Zeppelin one time when I was working on a light show at the Montreux Jazz Festival as a teenager. And he had a paperback copy of one of my dad's books in his back pocket, Escape from Reason. It was just sort of unbelievable, um, the reach that my parents had. So if you had taken a snapshot of our family, let's just say in 1968 or 1970, you would have assumed Francis Schaeffer was, if anything, somewhat of the left, because the open door policy of Libri Fellowship was that gay people, transgender people, 
drug addicts. Nobody had to change who they were, what they were doing to come and be welcomed. So my dad was so far ahead of his time in terms of the love reflected in the climate that was fostered in Labrie of an open home. You know, I spent my childhood stepping over sleeping bags on the way to the kitchen to get a glass of milk at, at night or something, because there was always people there and they stayed free and they stayed as long as they wanted. And, and you know, you walked up into the woods and there might be some drug addict from London up shooting heroin and dad would find out about it from other Libri workers who were more evangelical in their view. And they'd say, why don't we kick them out? And he'd say, look, you know, I mean, how, what's the point of having an open community that's trying to reach everybody if we're throwing people out for their problems? So that was my dad. And then when Roe v. Wade came along with, with the decision from the Supreme Court legalizing abortion, we used that as an example in a movie that I was directing of his called How Should We Then Live based on his best-selling book. Well, the book came out with the movie. It became a best-selling book. And we used Roe v. Wade as sort of an example of judicial overreach, judicial fiat, as dad put it, not so much just about the abortion issue itself, but about the structure of the US government. And by that time, dad was sort of pushing this idea of a Christian America with Christian foundations, and he was sort of moving to the right. But then C. Everett Koop, who became Ronald Reagan's Surgeon General, arrived at Brie and talked me into making a second series with dad. And sadly, I pushed my father into it. And sadly, as any parent out there knows, we do things for our kids that common sense might dictate otherwise. And dad acquiesced to my pressure and Dr. Koop's pressure and wrote a new book called Whatever Happened to the Human Race, made a film series that I produced. We spent about $5 million that I raised from people like the DeVos family of, and Van Andel, the people who went on and, and started Blackwater and all these guys. I mean, really the hard right. Um, the Hunt brothers who were cornering the silver market, Mary Crowley of Dallas and all the rest of it. And by the time that series was done and, and, and was out, dad now was a religious right leader. And so here me as 17, 18, 19 year old and then early twenties nepotistic sidekick in the, in the manner of you know, Billy Graham's son, uh, Franklin who followed in his father's footsteps, I was kind of doing the same thing. And I was out on the road and Jerry Falwell, the evangelist, church founder, college founder, segregationist, private jet, flying around speaking to vast meetings, including by the way, one year I was the keynote speaker at the Southern Baptist Convention to literally 23,000 pastors filling in for my dad who is undergoing cancer treatment. So my background is humble pastor's kid. Okay, that's one lifetime. Nepotistic, ambitious, greedy, pushy sidekick to my father. That's another person. Another person <laughs> who's me got his girlfriend, Jeannie, pregnant at 17 and 18. And one reason my dad acquiesced to me pushing him into the second series is, is I needed to earn a living. I had a baby and another one on the way. And so it's a very tangled web. And so fall in love, have children, stay put, save the planet, be happy is really on one level, my answer to my younger self. I was in the business of misogyny and selling fake family values in the 70s and early 80s on the religious right platform that then if you fast forward 40 years is very much present in the storming of the Capitol on January 6th. Our family's fingerprints are all over the Trump presidency in the sense that dad might have hated Donald Trump if he had been alive at that time. And I certainly did everything I could to oppose him, but we helped set the platform for this. So the new book is really about a couple of things. It's a, it's a diary of my own discovery of childcare, a sort of second bite at the apple with my grandchildren. When I wasted so much of my children's my opportunity to bond with my children when I was away six months of the year in the big time God business and in the film business. Um, so sort of reparenting myself. But then I began to wonder why these were the happiest years of my life. I thought getting old was supposed to be hard and terrible. And instead pushing 70, um, these are great times and, and great times with my wife, Jeannie. We've been together 52 years, great times with my grandchildren. So I started dissecting the science of love. And I know that sounds weird. Love's supposed to be on, on holiday greeting cards, but the science of love actually is very robust to the point, for instance, where now 
a lot of evolutionary psychology is dwelling on the fact that instead of it being about the survival of the fittest, it's always been about the survival of the friendliest, cooperation, hunter-gatherer society, sharing, because otherwise everybody would die, men as caregivers in traditional societies rather than this sort of macho, testosterone-driven, toxic male idea where Pete Buttigieg takes off six months to be with his child and all these idiots uh, start pushing back from the right and in, and and calling him a loser because he wants time with his child. So my my book, this book has a beginning that tells people how to locate me in the history of the rise of the religious right and my apology for doing that. It's followed by a book divided between the pleasure of childcare giving in the stories I tell about my grandchildren combined with the hard science of evolutionary psychology and development wherein love is is not a feeling. Love is a scientific thing that can be measured as, as accurately in one's brain, hormonally, and with scans as a heart attack, as anything. Um, and so, you know, as I wrote this book, it became a project that was divided between these two things. And what I'm hoping, and I know this sounds very, uh, I guess, presumptuous, but I would like this new book to become the blueprint for what the new normal is post-COVID. And that blueprint I think is already being stamped out by people who seem to be responding not to my book, but to the facts of history. When you read these headlines about this great resignation going on, people leaving their jobs, wanting to stay home more, people coming back to work, but now insisting to work from home because they got used to being with their children or caring for their elderly parent or seeing more of their partner or simply just more of life. And then people in the blue collar realm insisting on better pay and rights and time with their children. And then this huge pushback against the Democrats for trying to get paid family leave and so forth and so on. And Pete Buttigieg getting criticized for doing just what I call for in the book. It's nuts because right now, Andy, every headline I read in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Guardian, a third of them could be torn out of the subject matter from my book. So I didn't know it, but I have written a book that I'm not claiming was prophetic, but I certainly saw something coming long before COVID was writing about it. Address it in my book in very direct terms, talking about the fallout from COVID forcing us to stay home and so forth. And now I've written a book that I think can be used by anybody who thinks, for instance, that men should be caregivers and can be caregivers or women who want to be in the job market, but don't wanna to be told, wait till you're 40 to have a baby and use IVF, get pregnant now if you feel like it, we'll give you the time off and you can come back at the same level of employment or legislators who are looking for support, scientific support, cultural support, spiritual support for legislation that really is pro-family in the true sense and not just simply repackage misogyny like I was selling in the 70s. So I'm hoping this becomes an important book. I'm hoping it becomes a project. And I've written some books in the past that have been New York Times bestsellers, and I've written others that have gone like a stone into a pond never to be seen again. I have no idea what the chemistry is that makes one succeed like that and another totally disappear. But I will say if any book that I've written in the last 15, 20, 30 years um, becomes a project, this will be the one that can change the most in terms of our culture's direction. And so I'm really hoping people pick it up and do me the personal favor of ordering the book, maybe giving some away and using whatever platform they have, book clubs, any media thing they have, folks like you, Andy, who are stepping up as my caregiver today, speaking of caregivers, you're acting as, you know, you're in a mothering role to me uh, right now, um, caring for me by letting me talk about this book. And I, I would really like anybody of goodwill who cares about the issue of work-life balance and imbalance to step up and help me um, promote it. There, long answer. Well, I was just, I'm happy it was because now I can add to my resume, Frank Schaefer caregiver. And that's um, me. That, that should, you know, promote the next one. So I'm doing my part for those that, you know, obviously can't see it. I've got, I've got two copies here. Uh, you know, one signed, uh, you know, one is the uh, advanced reader copy book. And Thank of course, you. for Thank those you. that can't see, you know, uh, Frank has this amazing is that a 20 foot banner behind you to help? No, not uh, quite. It's, it's like a poster <laughs> size picture of my book that I stick up to remind people what it looks like. But, uh, you know, the, the woman who designed the cover, I think, did a great job because she took fall in love, have children, stay put, save the planet, be happy. If you look it up on Amazon, you'll see that she put them all as sort of bullet points 
so that somehow the artwork of the cover and the title all, all become interchangeable in a way that usually doesn't happen. So kudos to my designer, who I thank profusely in the acknowledgments, by the way, because I think she was just brilliant in what she did. Yeah, yeah. But I guess the most important question, because we're going to dig into a lot of the stuff that you were just talking about there in the introduction. Um, you know, did your publisher pay you per word for the title? Because it's by far I know, it's a brilliant, brilliant title. But, you know, it's, I it's it, but, you know, it my explains it all. subtitle to my memoir, Crazy for God, is even longer. And and I got a lot of laughs about that, too. So I think this time I decided to just go one better and do the title. But, you know, I, I gave the publisher alternative titles. This is the one they like best. And it was my first choice. But um, publishers have a way of changing the title up on you. But for once, they were saying, no, the very fact that it's so unusual in length makes this stand out. And the only request I had to my editor to pass on to the designer was, look, there, there's no point this title being what it is unless you can read it from across the room. You know, if you walk into a yeah. bookstore and it's turned face out on the shelf, um, I want them to be able to read it and, and come up and I want it to stir the curiosity factor. And I, I think that the, uh, the title may do that. I'm not saying it does, but I'm hoping it does. Uh, you know, publishers are famous for that. You got to remember it. It even happened to Tolkien. You know, uh, Tolkien yeah. hated the publishers changed the name of the final book to The Return of the King. He's like, you're giving the ending away. So away, if it happens yeah. to Tolkien, it can happen to, to happen. Exactly. To, so. to very lesser lights like me. <laughs> So parenthood, um, as you write about this, parenthood has been a healing experience for me, especially as is extended on hands-on grandparenthood. Yes. But give the way that parenthood is threatened by career-oriented capitalism, it's fraught mm. subject these days. Take us a little deeper there. Well, the only reason the subject of parenthood being a fraught subject because the way it is sub subverted by our version of capitalism is because it has been tangled up with a kind of a faux feminism, not real feminism that is about egalitarianism, but a kind of a faux feminism that basically has been foisted on women, start with women, by corporate America, where they've stripped them of all choice and agency. And basically the deal is, look, you go to college, and don't even have a boyfriend because God forbid you get distracted by your romantic life away from the all important career oriented education you're getting, get a master's degree, get into a high level business and a fancy paying job. And then maybe in your late thirties, we'll give you room to have a child. If that um, ha having essentially watched the curve of your, your fertility clock, start tipping downward from your mid-20s onward. And then the message to males is, you come to the office and don't even pretend you have a family because if you take paternity leave, we're gonna hold it against you. We're going to say, look, you're not really serious. If you were serious, you'd be here working on the weekends at, in the office. Now COVID hits and everybody's sort of sent home and the sky's clear of jet trails for a while like they did after 9-11. And there's a moment of reconsideration now resulting in what's called the great resignation, where everybody's either quitting or going away or reconsidering what they're doing, precisely because of what I'm talking about in my book. And that is this kind of faux feminism that said the new ethic is all about work and not about family. It's not real feminism. Real feminists have always been about a whole approach to life that is just as much about relationships, if not family, as it is about work. But the faux corporate feminism has said, no, 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 we want you all in the office and we want you back there right now. I have quotes in my book from my daughter, who by the way, is a CEO of an investment company in New York. I mean, this is a big time sexy job. And for a woman, it's total break the glass ceiling time. She writes about how so many people won't even listen to her when she says that her best qualification for being a CEO of, of a venture capital investment company is the time she spent raising her kids before she got into business and got them to school age that she learned more from that than anything she's learned from business about management, time management, priorities, dealing with other people, negotiating things and so forth and so on. I have another friend, Christine Derrico, who I include in the book, who is a lawyer and a judge telling me how she's so sick of having in the male construct of this faux feminism to lie about the fact that she takes time off to be with her kids. And she has to email or, 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 or text people saying, I'm on the way to the office, or I'm in the office, or I'm in a meeting. Of course, what she's really doing is either a school pickup or a sports event, or maybe she's taking care of her mom, caregiving to elderly people too. It's not just about children. 
And this also includes people who don't have kids by design. It has nothing to do with biological parenthood who have to either lie about or minimize their relationships. You know, a sick boyfriend you wanna go see, uh, you know, a lesbian lover, whoever it might be, where you prioritize being with them. You know, picture back in the eighties, uh, some, some gay friend of mine who's nursing his gay lover during AIDS before it became less of a threat, has to lie and pretend he's somewhere else. He can't say I'm nursing my lover today. He's got to pretend he's at the office doing some high fancy thing for Vogue magazine or whatever it might be. So this has nothing to do with traditional marriage or, or gender roles. It has to do with everybody. And I cite as an example in the book at the beginning, the gay community that in the 70s and 80s stepped out and said, look, we're coming out of the closet and we demand the right to love openly. Now it's time for the rest of us to make the same demand and to replace the faux feminism of career orientation at the exclusion of all else with a real feminism of inclusion that says, no, 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 no. We are not going to buy into this male testosterone driven where you know, you're building your own rocket and you're making trillions and that's the ambition of everybody and we're defined by our job. We are talking about being whole people and we're going to demand it. So we are going to demand paternity leave. We're going to demand maternity leave. And yes, it's going to have to be paid. And we want medical care too. And we're not going to lie about the fact we're taking time out this afternoon to go to a soccer match for our son or our daughter. And we are going to include everybody in this, non-binary people, gay people, and the rest. So what I'm calling for in the book is not a return to anything, because there's nothing to go back to in American history that's better. I'm calling to go forward to a new place where the feminist movement is seen and the movement of inclusion and, and equality is seen as the next evolutionary step that is based in biology and science, not feelings, not social activism, not politics, evolutionary science. We evolve to be happiest and most filled with joy when we abide by the ethic of the survival of the friendliest and when we are receiving and giving care. And I'll just give you a very personal example that I wasn't intending on talking about today, Andy, but I'm going to talk to you about it. Um, a few days ago, my wife had a mild heart attack. I've been with Jeannie 52 years. This is my version of the universe ending. Not my death. I literally do not fear death. I, I'm not saying that's good or bad. I really don't. But the cataclysmic feeling of being threatened by the level of loneliness that would be there if something happened to Jeannie, um, I have no answer for. It's absolutely overwhelming. So I spent three days sitting in the hospital with her in a cardiac unit while they were ministering to her. And then she went in for a two hour procedure and they put in a stent, something her dad had done and her brother had done. It kind of runs in her family. And Thank God she's okay. She's made a good recovery. I've been nursing her every single day, 12, 15 hours a day, sitting with her, cooking for her, which I do anyway. I love to cook. And far from this being a burden, the joy I have in that shared friendship, these, the time in the hospital and the time at home has been some of the best days we've ever had together because we both see each other so clearly now, um, really see each other clearly and love each other so deeply. And the level of friendship is so great. Um, and Jeannie said a sort of a wonderfully lovely thing. She was coming out of anesthesia. I held her hand as we were walking with the gurney being pushed back up to the cardiac unit. After her, the, the surgery, she had to put this stent in through a, through a wire pass through the veins in her wrist up into her heart. And I said to Jeannie, um, were you afraid? And she says, well, yeah, I was kind of nervous. And then she looked at me and said, yes, but then... Um, I found myself lying there filled with such gratitude for the wonderful life I've had that as I went to sleep, all I could think of was the sense that I had been treated so well by life and I was so grateful. Now, you have to understand something. I am the, who crashed into her life as a teen, trained in a reformed Calvinist background to bully women into submission. And this was called women submitting to their husbands. It was supposed to be the godly way of life. You were a disciplinarian to children. Your wife had to obey you. God had ordained this. And of course, it caters to all the worst proclivities 
in the human heart to tell someone they're in charge and God wants other people to obey them. And I believed this crap for a while. And Jeannie forgave me the horror of my own background that I brought with me to that marriage. She was in love with me, but she forgave me long enough that I fell in love with her in a totally new way as a forgiver and a merciful angel in my life. And then over the next 30, 40 years, she became almost like a therapist unofficially. And that is that I changed for her. And so we come to the day when she's telling me she's had a wonderful life. And that means she looks back on that with a level of mercy and kindness, which is just mind boggling to me because no one else standing around that gurney would possibly know the background. Um, you know, evangelical theology about women is literally criminal. So she was married to a criminal. It was as if she had married into the mob, to a hitman who had repented and stopped murdering people because of her example. And I put it that strongly. I really mean that. Evangelical theology about women is criminal. It is a bullying horror right up there with anti-Semitism and things like that. So she took a camp guard, as it were, and talked him and forgave him and counseled him. So he changed. So then she's coming out of this surgery. And I'm just saying to myself, I have seen mercy. You know, if there, if there is such a thing as seeing the face of God, I'm looking into it right now, telling me that she's had a wonderful life when I know what she had to put up with as this pregnant teen and me poncing around being so masterful and lordly. And then I drag her into the whole evangelical thing and she hung in there with me. So to me, you know, in a weird way, fall in love, have children, stay put, save the planet, be happy. Two weird things have happened, strange things. One public in that the COVID epidemic has forced people to consider every single thing I've said in the book. It's literally now ripped from the headlines. There's a huge pushback from the Republicans refusing to fund childcare, for instance. These hypocrites who tell women not to have abortions and won't fund childcare so they can have careers. Jerks real jerks. And then on a personal side, my wife coming out of this heart attack as this kind of luminous figure and my joy at having changed for her and the completion that that's made in my own heart. Um, in a sense saying, yeah, good thing you spent six years writing this book because what it really is, is a testimony to the love of this woman. This is a love story more than anything else. And it really all centers on this shy, glorious female who forgave and trained and cajoled and also screamed and kicked my butt. The good sex, the no sex, the real therapy, you know, uh, that she's, she's provided. And then you come to this place of peace as you're pushing into your 70s and she has a heart attack and you're saying, oh, please no. And I know this will sound too Oprah-esque, but not only can I not face loneliness, but man, do I owe her. And I want her to have a glorious old age. I want her to, to have a time of not only loving her grandchildren, but living long enough to see her great-grandchildren. And so when I chop up berries and fruit for her and make her her granola and take it up to her in bed as she recovers, for me, this is a sacrament. I feel like I'm in, I'm in a, a church service. I, I just can't tell you what it means to me to be able to serve somebody who has forgiven so much and, and from whom I've learned so much. So I know that's off the subject in a way, but I just have to tell you that because obviously having just gone through this, Andy, you know, <laughs> I, I can't ignore um, what's been happening in my life. And it's one of the most profound experiences I've had. Look, we both had health problems, but there's something particularly attention grabbing about the words, your wife is having a heart attack. So Jeannie's not my wife, she's my life. And um, uh, I can't put it any other way. And only I know the price she's paid for hooking her wagon to mine and the fact that anything good that's happened in my life comes from her. So when I make an appeal for men to become caregivers, I'm not just talking about having children or a few years of diaper changing. I'm talking about receiving the kind of love that you can't get unless you start caring for people. And it's the saddest thing in the world to me that so many people miss out on this aspect of life. I'm not even talking about romantic love, but priority, prioritization. Man, you know, is anything to do with career far away 
when you're sitting in a hospital room next to the person you love more than anyone on this planet. I mean, the last thing you're thinking about is, you know, a paycheck or how do I do some big fancy thing? That's all I have to say on that. I'm sorry, but that's just where I've been at. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Louisville's Kentucky's annual Festival of Faith will be held November 18th to the 20th. BSK will play a key role in the conference. As a sponsor, and Dr. Lewis Brogdon, Executive Director of BSK's Institute for Black Church Studies, will lead a session entitled Black Faith's Encounter with Black Trauma, Pain, and Nihilism on Friday, November the 19th at 10 a.m. Join us for this event via live stream by visiting festivaloffaiths.org. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. I think for a lot of people, it it takes a personal crisis to wake them up for the reality of uh, how much their work um, or what they think their life should be has consumed them. Of course, a global pandemic has created that platform for so many of us. And, and of course, you know, as we're seeing from these um, statistics that are showing that millions of people are, are quitting their jobs to find something yeah. with less pressure. Yeah. You know, it, it, it does feel like, you know, as they talked about during the pandemic, when the interest rates were so low, it feels like a, uh, a seller's market right now. So it almost feels as if uh, because of the number of people leaving their jobs that workers have more say so now and have more leverage now than ever before. But also we know that especially corporations uh, have no interest whatsoever in, in, in giving this to their employees because it's always about the bottom line. It's always about mm. filling what the shareholders say. So because there's a lack of intrinsic ethical motivation from a corporate standpoint, you know, is there anything legislatively that can be done to help cattle prod this culture so that corporations, um, you know, in a sense are forced into uh, caring for their employees in healthy ways so employees can have healthy lives outside of their jobs. Yeah, I would put this right up with desegregation. I mean, we need a change of heart, then we need a change in the law. Right now, we live in a culture in which there are two tiers of rights. You know, it's like animal farms. Some are more equal than others. Corporate America and the billionaire class are far more equal than others. And people talk about higher taxation and a way to level the playing field, but the big way to level the playing field has started. And that is from the bottom up. We demand more. And it really is time to take a page from the gay rights movement and the early feminists and the people who fought for integration and against racism, Martin Luther King Jr. I mean, this is part of the art. What people don't understand is it's not an anti-capitalist statement to say, we need to get the balance right. It's a pro-capitalist statement because you want people to have jobs and families, not have to choose. So we need legislation, for instance, I'll just give you some examples. We need a legal guarantee that if someone takes paternity or maternity leave, they are paid by their company and or the state to take that leave. It should be included in everything we do. I would say nobody should work for a company that won't give them at least two years off with the birth of every child if they want to take it. That's one thing that ought to be law. Second thing that should be law is free medical care for everybody. Look, if you're pro-life and you don't want abortions, then help people pay for having children. No brainer. The third thing that ought to happen is a change in the culture. And that is top leadership down. It ought to be the norm for men to share caregiving with children as much as women. Look, I have been doing childcare for 12 years for three young grandchildren. And one of my motivations is that I believe my daughter-in-law, Becky, deserves to be able to have the full-time job she loves as a school administrator. My son, John, deserves to be able to work knowing his kids are loved. 
This isn't some big altruistic thing on my part. This is the norm. Childcare has always been older people helping with younger children so parents can get on with their lives. That's the norm. What's absurdly different is this idea that we hand our kids off to strangers and pay them to care for them, whether it's a nanny or someone else. That only happens because of this ridiculous idea that men somehow are not caregivers. One of the things I cite in my book that ought to be recognized in the law is the fact that there's huge amounts of research by Feldman and other people that I give great detail in the book about on the fact that brain chemistry, hormonal levels that can be measured by saliva and blood samples, brain scans show in adoptive fathers, adoptive gay fathers, single men who adopt children, have children, parents in, in mixed marriages where you bring a child along into a marriage with someone else, men's hormonal brain chemistry can be measured along with women's in ways now that in the last 25 years we have learned show an equal capacity of a man to have the emotional bond with the child as a woman. In fact, the brain chemistry of a gay adoptive father who bonds closely with the child, okay, unrelated to him biologically, is exactly the same on every level as what is measured in the brain of a mother of a newborn child while she is breastfeeding and has the highest levels of oxytocin and everything else measurable in her bloodstream and her hormonal levels that she will have for her whole life. Men actually have the same thing. Nobody knew this. In other words, evolution, not Jesus, evolution, not morals, evolution, not law, is screaming something at us. And that is, you are a caregiver. And when you look at statistics of loneliness in the male population cut off from that aspect of their life, the number of cops who kill themselves, four times more police die by their own hand with a firearm than are killed in the line of duty. The, 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 the studies by Cigna and other people of loneliness. What you have to see is that everything is shouting at us. You've got the balance wrong. And the balance isn't just work-life balance. It's work as an ID. It's that we ask people what they do. And if they say what I do, they're expecting me to say I'm a writer. How about I tell them what I really do? I am Jeannie's lover and I am my grandchildren's nanny. You got a problem with that? That's what I do, all right? Oh, you mean my job, how I earn my living. Oh, well, you know, I rob banks for a living. I, I'm a stick up artist. Uh, you know, I, I lift uh, pocketbooks and, and steal wallets. Oh, you mean like, okay, I'm a writer, I'm a writer. Yeah, I mean, I'm joking, but what you do, do you wash dishes? Do you serve tables? That's what you do. I thought you meant, who am I? Who we are is what matters. And who we are is defined by what we see in the face of those who love us and we love. What is written there is the only real mirror of truth. So what I see with Jeannie when I'm treating her well and I'm bringing her uh, breakfast in bed and coffee in the morning and she's getting over a heart attack, that's me. That's, what I, that's my mirror. That's what I see. Book review, they don't know me. If they love my book or hate it, it's no skin off my nose. Same with any kind of corporate review of a career thing. That's not who you are. You are what your lover sees. You are what your child sees. You are what the friend sees or the employee you work with and either bully or pay them out most you can to. That's who you are. So my book calls for changes across the board, both social and political. But at the end of the book, I have a whole checklist of things that should happen legislatively. And I hope somebody puts it into the hands of Joe Biden and the other influencers out there in politics, because I think I've written a good book for them. And, uh, and, and because I'm a pretty good writer, it's backed up with stories and other things that makes it very easy to go through. You know, I know you don't consider yourself uh, to be a Christian, but if you were to put yourself in the shoes of the clergy listening to this or reading the book, um, what would be your first steps in cultivating what you were trying to argue um, in this book, um, what would be those first steps in doing some sort of spiritual formation of mm. helping people see that this is not some separate set apart thing, um, but this is deeply interwoven to your existence as a, as a person of faith? Well, let me put it this way. I call myself an atheist who believes in God. So this morning when I got up, I made my cross because I've been in the Greek Orthodox Church for 30 years. And I said, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Lord, I offer you this day. 
I pray for Jeannie, Jessica, Francis, and John, Amanda, Ben, Donnie, Lucy, me, Jack, Nora, Becky, and Claire. That's my family, including Claire, who is my grandson Ben's French wife he married last winter during COVID on the porch of a, of a judge in Connecticut who agreed to marry them if they would shovel the snow up his driveway and could get into his house. Um, now, why would I pray like that when I describe myself as an atheist? Because I've long since felt myself that intellectually, uncertainty is actually what faith is. I don't know enough to say that I'm a believer. I don't certainly buy any of the theology I was given as a child. But on the other hand, um, I was also raised in a way in which without prayer and without any kind of spiritual content, I feel empty. So the way I put it to my friend Christopher Hitchens, the famous new atheist before he died, after he had read my memoir, Crazy for God, and liked it, would call me quite often while he was reading it. He finished the book and he called me and he said, why aren't you one of us? Why aren't you out there on the hustings with the new atheist movement? Um, and I said, because I'm not, a, I'm not an atheist in that sense. I'm, I, I pray and I like to go to my Greek Orthodox church because I need spiritual content. And he says, why? When intellectually you're one of us. And I said, because that's how my mother raised me. You got a problem with that, Chris? And he laughed uh, at my sort of, uh, you know, pretended aggressiveness. And he said, no, no, I see what you mean. And so I wrote this little book, Why I'm an Atheist Who Believes in God, which explains that I don't hold the two paradoxes that contradict each other. One of them has to be true and one false. Maybe they can both be true. Um, so I am someone not an agnostic, but I'm someone who has not come to the conclusion that uncertainty is a bad thing. And I think it is a form of spirituality and, and I pray and, and spirituality nurtures me. Um, and I don't have any problem with the fact that intellectually, I really don't believe a word of what I was raised on. I have no idea who Jesus was in terms of son of God and all this stuff. The, the delight is to find that evolution itself mirrors uh, the things that I was raised on that are most helpful in terms of the Beatitudes and the teachings of Jesus and so forth. But what's odd to me is people don't realize that, you know, humankind is very young and we've only been writing things for about 5,000 years. And 10,000 years ago, you know, is when we started growing things. And before that, we were hunter-gatherers. The cart and the horse situation, we totally put the cart in front of the horse morality only exists and church and religion only exists because it actually mirrors the best of evolution. If evolution was not already screaming at you to share and be kind and provide and be altruistic, if you want to survive, then the words of Jesus and other prophets would mean nothing. The only reason they resonate is they happen to reflect back to us what evolution tells us. If an evangelical Christian of the old school, not a Trump cultist, believing in QAnon and anti-vaxxer, I'm talking about when, when evangelical Christians were actually Christians before they became Christian nationalists. Um, likes the fact that in my book, I talk about things that are mirrored within the teachings of Jesus, so be it. If they wanna flip the cart and horse and say that all this comes from Jesus and we wouldn't have any of these values without spirituality, they're wrong because obviously evolution comes first uh, in so many ways, historically amongst others, but I'll buy it. So anybody reading Fall in Love, Have Children Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy, who finishes saying, what a pity Frank Schaefer's not a Christian anymore in the sense they mean it, this kind of crazy certainty about things that are obviously uncertain. Um, fine, as long as they buy the basic message that aligns very well with the teachings of Jesus, as in put people first ahead of career and money. I don't think that's quite, you know, I don't think that's a contradiction of the New Testament, at least as I have read it. Um, so I would just leave it there and just say, I think this book will be very helpful to all but the most closed-minded of the most fundamentalist religious people, uh, because in a way it confirms their point of view about what's most important in life, or at least their official point of view that they seem to have abandoned in favor of corporate America, capitalism, rapacious, male testosterone-driven sort of Ayn Randian heresy. Uh, you know, maybe my book perversely will call Christians back to be actual Christians again in a sort of a left-handed manner. That would be nice. The book is Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy. Our guest is Frank Schaefer, and you can stay connected with Frank by checking out his work at frankschaeferblog.com. 
Uh, Frank, thank you for making the time to have this conversation, especially um, in a week that you've been dealing with uh, a lot of personal crisis. Yeah, uh, yeah, Andy, it's a great pleasure. And the other thing I'd tell people is I've got a podcast of my own in conversation with Frank Schaefer everywhere you find podcasts, and I have wonderful guests. And Andy, why don't you come um, and and get Ernie, my producer, to book you onto my podcast because I'd like to flip this and actually talk to you instead of holding forth and pontificating for an hour. I'll get you to do some pontificating. We'll swap <laughs> like there, roles. There's a reason most people are listening to this not because of me. They're listening for people like you. Yeah, uh, well, the, the facilitators like you are the guys that make the world go round. So let's flip it, and I'm going to get uh, Ernie to book you. Will you agree to come on my in conversation with Frank Schaefer and talk about what you do? I'd love to have more more conversation with you, Frank. It's uh, it's, it's been a pleasure, and and thank you for calling us uh, to not let the discoveries that we all made and the life lessons that we learned in a time of great change and suffering uh, go for naught. Yeah, and by the way, to anybody who has any kind of a book club or a group, I'm not hard to reach. I never say no to something on Zoom if I can just stay home and do it. I don't charge any fee for anything I do, at all on that kind of a thing. So if you have a group and you want me to talk to them or have a discussion or teach a class, and if it's a book club and that's you and your mother-in-law, so be it, I'll do it. Uh, just get in touch with me at frankashafer at aol.com. And if you're gonna rail at me or take me to task, don't put it in the subject line because I won't read it. Fool me saying that it's a nice thing. and then I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll get into the content. But frankashafer at aol.com and I will respond and I'll do whatever can help you or your group look at some of these questions because I really believe in them. And I would like to help people come to the same conclusions when it comes to, to life and love and what comes first. This podcast is presented to you by McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University, who exists to train ministers who inspire the church and the world to imagine, discover, and create God's future. Located in Atlanta, Georgia, the McAfee School of Theology offers doctoral and master's degree programs, including a fully online Master of Divinity degree, the only fully online MDiv offered by a national research university. You can visit their webpage, theology.mercer.edu to learn more about their programs and scholarships. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF's podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, the Center for Congregational Health, and McAvee School of Theology's Doctorate of Ministry program. Check out cvf.net for more information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. Oh, and I don't think we've mentioned this, that you should join the listener community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.